We are in uh, Psalm 139, taking a break from Exodus, Psalm 139. So the Psalms kind of in the middle of your Bible. Uh, you want to get to the end of the book of Psalms, Psalm 139. We're going to uh, read together as you stand to your feet, if you're physically able to stand, just the last two verses. This will be a reading and a prayer. Uh, Psalm 139, we're going to pick it up at verse 23. David writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. You may be seated. Father, what an incredible prayer from an amazing man. Search me, O God, that's our title. Know my anxious thoughts. Try me, O God. Test me. What a brave prayer. See if there's anything hurtful, offensive to you in my life. And remove it, purge it from me, Lord. Lead me in the everlasting way. Father, uh, coming to you on behalf of this congregation and really our country, forgive us for 60 million babies that have been killed in our country, uh, something that has been deemed as legal but doesn't make it right. Forgive us, Lord, for things that we've done in our past. Many of us could say that we're guilty before you. If not this sin, then something else. Surely uh, we're guilty and in need of a Savior. I love the honesty of David. Search me. He doesn't say, search them. He says, search me, O God. If there's anything hurtful in me, my temptation is always to point at someone else. But David says, no, Lord, scrutinize me first. I want to make sure I'm right with you. And Lord, thank you for the gospel, the everlasting way, the way to eternal life. Jesus, you are the way. You're the truth. You're the life. You're the one who took our punishment at the cross. You're the one who was wounded for my transgression, bruised for my iniquity. The chastisement for my peace was laid upon you, and by your wounds I am healed. But we, Father, like sheep, we've all gone astray. Each of us, we've turned to our own way. But you, Lord, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Thank you for your great love for us. Despite what we've done, Lord, change our hearts. Show us what you want us to see in this majestic psalm of David. In Jesus' name I ask and all God's people said, amen. Search me, O God, is the title. David's, uh, the rabbi said of this psalm, probably the most glorious psalm uh, in the Psalter, you guys know that many of the Psalms were penned by David. As I reflected on the Psalm, which I've looked at uh, on many occasions, I kind of thought that this is probably a reflection of David's whole life before God. You know, if you've ever had a moment, no matter where you are in life, you could be a teenager, you could be, you know, midlife, you could be maybe older. If you ever have a chance to reflect on your life before God and see what he's done for you, it's an amazing thing to think about. 
And David's really going to take us all the way back to the womb. He's going to take us back to the time when God was skillfully weaving him in his mother's womb. And he's going to talk about a plan that God always had for him. And so I think that you could say, if you're interested in kind of putting a heading on this, this is a wisdom psalm of David. It's a descriptive psalm of praise. It's filled with wisdom, but it's a reflection of a lifetime in close connection to God, close intimacy with God at every stage of life. It's reflecting on the goodness of God at every stage of life. It's a God that made us, a God that knows us, a God that cares about us. And it's a psalm that uh, celebrates some of the incommunicable attributes of God. What does that mean? That means things that belong to God alone. The first uh, six verses here do celebrate God's omniscience, that he knows everything, if you're taking notes. Verses 7 through 12 will celebrate God's omnipresence. He's everywhere or all creation is before him. And verses 13 through 18 will celebrate God's omnipotence, taking us right into the womb and watching God majestically create David and weave him together in his mother's womb. And then a, the key, I think, to the whole psalm is the response or the takeaway of David, where in light of who God is and how good he's been to David, he says, I want you to search me, O God. I want you to test me. This is a brave prayer. And I want you to see if there's anything that offends you in me. And I want you to lead me away from that and lead me into your everlasting way. That is an incredible prayer. And we have an incredibly power, powerful culture in our world today. The power of the culture is amazing. It's like a tidal wave. The worldview of the culture is always being pushed on us through movies, television, uh, the internet, popular media, social media, it's everywhere. And if you spend any time in any of those areas, you are going to be getting the worldview of the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's a powerful force. Just to give you an example, the show Hannah Montana, which uh, featured Miley Cyrus, and, and I'm going there to tell you a, kind of a sad story. Miley grew up in a Christian home Billy Ray Cyrus was her father. I believe she grew up in Tennessee in a conservative evangelical Christian church just like this. She was interviewed by Barbara Walters when she was a teenager, and Barbara asked her a question in that interview. How are you going to avoid falling into a life of sin and immorality and all of this like so many childhood stars before you? And Miley, with a smile on her face, confidently said, my faith is going to keep me on track. Well, Miley's faith has dissipated, to say the least. Uh, she's been in many provocative and racy things, including she did a photo shoot, I don't remember what year it was, for Planned Parenthood, where she is licking a cake in a provocative way, and it says that abortion is health care on that cake. Now, I heard recently that Miley has returned to her faith, but in that interview, she's returned semi. She says that she's now attending a church that works for her. What that means is that church is not opposing any of her views that are basically the views of the world. Today, 
one of the most important things to the culture is a radical individualism where what matters most to the culture is what you feel, your truth, what you think, what you believe, and what you've come or you've concluded in terms of different issues. Never mind what the Word of God says. In fact, if you're on the side of the Word of God these days, you're painted as an ignorant person who doesn't really know anything, and you need to kind of get over it. But the Word of God has something very important to say to us. And I would just say to you, I'm not trying to beat up Miley Cyrus. I pray that she fully returns to the Lord. And she is a picture of many in our culture, and frankly, many who grew up in the church and were hit with the avalanche of the cultural lies, be it about sexualities we talked about last week, be it about life in the womb. Uh, you know, the sanctity of life is from the womb to the tomb, so it's not just about abortion. But the power of the world and the power of the culture should not be underestimated. In fact, if you're, get, if you're imbibing, drinking in more of the culture in a given week than you are of the Word of God, you're in trouble. Because the world is sending very decisive messages about what you should believe and what you should think. And it's very emotional. A lot of the, the movies and the rhetoric are intended to bring out emotion to sway you in your views. Be watching for it because it's a very real tactic. And of course, I'm not underestimating the fact that there's very real emotion on all sides. So just to summarize, this is a wonderful psalm about God knowing us, protecting us, making us, leading us, searching us. And then the question of how will we respond? The first section, celebrating God's omniscience, David writes, O Lord, that's Yahweh, Psalm 139, verse 1. You have searched me and known me. Now, the idea of God's searching is to examine carefully, intimately investigate. It has the image of separating or winnowing the wheat from the chaff. God, you have searched me and you know me. So the first thing that you need to know is that God is personal and that he knows you. And this is something that the song and that the original psalm, of course, was a song. It celebrates God's knowledge of us, the idea of divine inspection, God plumbing the depths of our being. God knows the heart. David may be reflecting on those very words. I don't look at the outward. I look at the heart. And God said of David that David was a man after God's own heart. What makes you a man or a woman after God's own heart? I would say humility and honesty, as you're going to see in this psalm. But first, the idea of divine inspection. Now, God is not like a TSA worker where he has to kind of pat you down or you go through that machine to see what's going on. God already knows everything about you. He knows the inside. He knows the outside. He knows the motives. He knows your thought life. He knows everything about you. And pray tell he still loves you. Isn't that amazing? Psalm 51 verse 5 says, you desire truth in the inner, inner parts. In the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. David wrote that after he fell with Bathsheba in adultery. In 1 Chronicles 28 verse 9, as David charges Solomon in the building of the temple, he says, 1 Chronicles 28 9, if you're taking notes, the Lord searches all hearts, 
and understands every intent of the thoughts. God knows everything about us. He knows, verse 2, when I sit down and when I get up. He understands my thought from afar. No one knows the thoughts of a man except that man, 1 Corinthians 2.11. But there's another being who knows our thoughts, and that is God. In fact, it says in the New Testament that Jesus knew their thoughts. The only way that Jesus could know the thoughts of a person is to be divine. Nobody knows the thoughts of a man except that man or that woman. But God knows my thought from afar. He knows, in fact, a thought before I think it. Beecher says, before men we stand as opaque beehives. They can see, uh, they can see the thoughts go in and out of us, but what work they do inside of a man cannot, they cannot tell. Before God, we are a as a glass beehives, and all our thoughts are doing within us perfectly. He sees them and understands them. Essentially, he's saying it's not opaque to God. He sees it all. In fact, God scrutinizes or searches out my path, verse 3, and my lying down. He knows when I take dog naps. I don't take cat naps, by the way. Uh, cat naps are too short. I take dog naps. I heard a comedian say that dogs are so funny, they, they will be laying in bed with you and the thought will cross their mind. You know, we've been laying in this bed for 14 hours together and I haven't gone to the bathroom that whole time, but it's okay because I'm lying with my master. How many of you like a good dog nap? Nice long, and anyway. The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all his paths and his paths here speak of a man who's being coaxed into adultery. God knows where I go, when I go, why I go, my motive. He knows when I lay down, when I rise up. He knows it all. In fact, he is a God who sees me, Genesis 16, 13. He is the God who sees me. Hagar said that of God when she wondered if anybody cared about her. He is the God who sees me. Even before there is a word on my tongue, not only does he know my thoughts and my actions, he knows my words before, notice verse 4, before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou does know it all. Sometimes, in, as I, I'm getting older, I say this often, that actor's name, that date, that whatever is on the tip of my tongue. Can I get a witness, anybody else out there? It's on the tip of my tongue. If I could just grab it. Well, God knows it before it's on the tip of my tongue. Before the word even forms, even if I didn't say the word on the freeway, but it was beginning to form in the back of my brain, God knows it. But I didn't say it. Yeah, but you thought it. <laughs> this is God, and he still loves us. That is amazing. In Malachi 3, we studied this last Wednesday. God heard people complaining, saying, oh, there's no profit in serving God. He's letting people get away from, get away with evil. But there was a group of people who feared the Lord, Malachi 3, 13 through 18, and esteemed his name. And God took note of their conversation, and he wrote it in his book of remembrance. Now, I don't think God needs books up in heaven. He knows everything. He doesn't need a computer up in heaven 
But when you do the right thing, here's the beautiful thing about being a Christian. God will reward us for the good that we've done, but he forgets our sin. Isn't that so amazing? God will remember all the good that we have done for the kingdom of God and reward us for it, and he will forget every sin that I've ever committed because it's been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? You see, God knows us so intimately that if he kept a record of my sin, I would be dust. And so he knows my times of rest, my rising, my thoughts, my path, my ways, my words. He knows everything about me. And he encloses me, hems me in, verse 5, NIV, behind and before. He lays his hand upon me. The master is always guiding, always nudging, always directing you remember in the Gospels when Jesus was moving along a road and a woman came to him and touched the hem of his garment as he was moving towards a home where Jairus' daughter lay very deathly ill. And as he was moving along and the crowds were pushing in against Jesus, one of the servants of Jairus, the synagogue leader, said, don't trouble the master anymore. Your daughter is dead. And he was devastated. And Jesus said to Jairus, just believe. And they, they went along and Jesus came to the house and the flute players were there and the people were mourning and there was noise and chaos. And Jesus said, the little girl hasn't died, she's only sleeping. And they laughed at him and they mocked him. And Jesus went into the room with some of his disciples. And you remember, he touched the little girl with his hand and he said, Talitha kum, which means little lamb, arise. And she arose. She was about 12 years old, Luke tells us. The hand of the master guiding us. I don't know how many things he spared me from. How many times he's nudged me. How many times he's been with me on the road or you know, at work or wherever it may be. How many times he's uh, helped me to avoid doing something stupid and hurtful. God is good. It says of that little girl, her spirit returned to her after Jesus touched her. And that's what the Lord does in our lives. He causes us to be born again. And I want you to imagine that little girl opening up her eyes. And the first thing that she saw when her spirit returned was the face of grace, the face of Jesus. Amen. And by the way, that's what we're going to see after we leave this life is the face of grace. David concludes God's omniscience and closeness with this a summary statement, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Such revelation of who you are, God, it's too high. It's lofty. I cannot attain it. It is mind-blowing to me. Oh, how he loves us. It's so amazing. This God that knows everything cares about me. It's so high. I can't attain to such knowledge. Now, the second a section of celebrating one of the attributes of God is God's omnipresence, that God is everywhere present or all of creation's before him. And David says in, in this song, the next stanza, if you will, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now, the psalm is largely positive, so there's two options here. One is there was a portion of David's life when he did flee from God. Do you guys remember when it was? Right after his sin with Bathsheba, he went into cover-up mode. 
and he tried to cover up his sin, and things got really ugly, as we well know. And David was running, at least metaphorically, from God. He may not have run to a distant land, but he was far from God. And maybe he's reflecting on that time. Where could I go? How could I think that I was you know, pulling the wool over your eyes. I wasn't doing it, God. But there's a second option, and it's probably more likely that the second option was when David was running from his father-in-law, Saul. Remember that? Saul, you know, went crazy, and uh, he was trying to kill David, and David had to hide in caves and different places, and he was literally running for his life. And he may have had moments of reflection like many of us have in dark places or even literally a dark cave. You know, where are you, Lord? And this is a good reflection on that. There's nowhere that you could go that God isn't there. There's nowhere that you could flee. Some of you have maybe backslidden from the Lord. Maybe you've been a prodigal. Maybe you you have gone to places that you don't belong. Maybe you're at a dark place emotionally or otherwise. But there's nowhere that you could ever flee from God's presence. Where in his universe could you ever run away from him? Now, when you get to heaven, you can ask Jonah about fleeing from God and whether or not God could hear you in every place, even from the stomach of a great sea monster. Amen? Did you hear about the girl who went out street witnessing and She was a pretty new Christian, and she ran into this atheist guy, outspoken guy, and he said, oh, you Christians, how could you believe the stories about the Bible? You know, this and that, and then he brings up Jonah. How can you you believe that Jonah was in the belly of a sea monster or a whale for three days and three nights? Did you guys see that guy who jumped off the bridge? And uh, uh, what was it, a porpoise kind of held him up? Uh, uh, above the water until he got rescued. He broke his back on impact. He, he jumped off the, what was it, the Golden Gate Bridge? And he broke his back and he was basically going to drown in a, and a porpoise pushed him up above the water until he could be rescued. Yeah. I mean, God has a porpoise for you. I, I'm telling you right now. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, Didn't even plan that. Anyway, so the atheist says, "That's yeah, I know, it's it's bad. Pray for me. He says, that that story about Jonah, how how can you believe that? And the girl says, well, sir, I don't know. I, I guess when I get to heaven, I'll just ask Jonah how it happened, and he'll tell me. And the atheist said, what if Jonah's in hell? She said, well, then you can ask him. Sometimes I wonder when I'm on airplanes if God can hear my prayers on an airplane. 30,000 feet in the air. I sure hope so because that's usually the time I pray the hardest. Can I get a witness? Anybody else? I heard Alistair Begg recently say, every time I fly, I think it's my last flight. (laughs) Can I get a witness? (laughs) If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield the grave, behold, you are there. If I took the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, can't help but think of Jonah. He says, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. God laid hold of Jonah through the sea monster and basically said to Jonah, you're not going to run away from the purpose that I've got for you. Even there, his hand will guide me. Even when I'm running, 
even when I think that I could go so far up or so far down that God would never be there. In my lowest moments, and I can think of some low moments, I can think of some moments personally when I was a new believer and I had gone back to my sin and, you know, deals that I made with God in desperate moments. Ever been there before? God, if you just get me out of this one, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. I can think of many low moments where God was so faithful. His hand was there. Even there, his hand guided me. God is good. Uh, Psalm 31, 3 says, Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, you lead, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. God is so good. There's nowhere that he won't turn me or guide me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. What if everything went dark? Maybe David's picturing the cave where he was hiding from Saul. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are the same to you. They're alike to you because you're God. Now, the, the second section, if you will, celebrating the omnipresence of God is something important. There's nowhere we could go where he's not there. And we're going to move now from God's all-knowingness and his omnipresence into his omnipotence in verses 13 through 18. And his strength or power takes us right into the womb. You know, you, you might, when you think of creation, maybe that's when you think of God's power, maybe the most majestic sea creatures or a bird in flight or the, the uh, solar system or the power of the waves or whatever it might be. But God, through David, takes us into the womb to show his omnipotence, that is, his all-powerfulness. And he says these words, For you formed my inward parts. David now talking about God's faithfulness all the way from beginning to end. Right into the womb, you formed my inward parts. You did weave me in my mother's womb. David said, when I was being formed inside my mama, and here's the language literally of the weaving of the high priestly garments that the high priest would wear in the temple, the majestic colors of the curtain that separated the, the holy place from the holy of holies. It's that idea. It's the master potter or the master weaver forming and shaping. I've been telling you about our granddaughter, Melody, and we got a chance to go to a 4D ultrasound when we were getting close to the birth. And we went into this room and we got invited and we were excited about it. And they started playing some music and they started showing us Melody through the ultrasound machine in the womb. And we could see her little face and her beautiful little features. And it was just incredible. And I tell you what, all the grandparents had tears in their eyes. The incredible power and beauty of life being formed. The circulatory system, the nervous system, the heartbeat, the nose, the eyes, the taste buds, the, the little fingers and hands and toes, all there. An amazing, majestic uh, creation of God. And David seems to be indicating that every baby is formed in the womb by God, or at least that he's providential over it. Turn to Job, just one book back, 
Job, of course, going through all these terrible trials. One book back to Job, chapter 10. You know, he had, he had his questions. He had his difficulties. But here's what he says, and it's kind of in a complaint form, like, I hope you're not done with me, God. But here's Job 10. Look at verse 8. Job says, your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Job 10.9. Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin, eleven, and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews. You gave me life and showed me kindness. And in your providence, I'm reading from the NIV, watched over my spirit. But this is what you concealed in your heart. And I know that this was in your mind. Notice that even Job, along with David, says, verse 8, you shaped me, you made me, you molded me, you knit me together, you clothed me with bones and sinews. God is the creator of children. The womb is sacred space. God forbid that we would go in and mess with that. I want you to turn to one more parallel passage. It's the book of Ezekiel. We're going to pass up the Psalms. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, uh, right before Daniel, chapter 16. But as you turn there, I want to tell you a quick story. At the Republican National Convention a few years back, um, Abby Johnson spoke. And Abby had worked for Planned Parenthood in an administrative capacity and she was, she was working there. She claimed to be a Christian at the time, and I'm not sure how you work all that out, but she was working in the front office. I, I believe she was running the clinic. And they were short-staffed one day, and she got called back uh, during an abortion procedure. They would use the sonogram machine to you know, guide the doctor as he did what he did. And I, I don't want to get too graphic here, but I, I will just tell you that Abby said that as the instruments were going into the womb, she could see the baby you know, the, this fully formed, alive child in the womb begin to be repelled by the instruments and almost like try to fight them off and then succumb to the machine that destroyed that beautiful child. She said the last thing that she saw was the spine spinning and then going into this suction machine. She said it was a devastating moment for her because up until that point, you know, you, know, you can... You can talk philosophically about things, but once the veil comes off of something, when, once you finally see something for what it is, there's no more dancing around topics like, well, what if the family's poor? Or what if the child was conceived in the not-so-greatest situation? Or you know, what about this? Or what about that? Or even the modern arguments, well, you Christians, all you care is about abortion, but you... Why aren't you involved in these other things? Well, we are involved in other things. And Christian families do adopt and do work in compassionate ways. But, but does that mean, is that an excuse for you to take the life of a child? Even if we weren't involved in those things, would that excuse you? Would that excuse anybody? And I heard, uh, to steal an argument from Scott Klusendorf, he's, he said he responds to those kinds of arguments by saying, well, if, if I uh, join you in that kind of work? Will you join me in my work then? They don't, they don't want to affirm that. Because most of these arguments are deflections away from the real issue. And the real issue is if that child 
is a precious life in that womb. We have no business going in there and no business destroying that life. Take a look at uh, Ezekiel 16. God is telling Israel what he did for them and using imagery uh, that we've already read. He says, 16, 18, you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them, that is idols, also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, 19, and honey, with which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. And so it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took 20, your sons and daughters, whom you had borne to me, and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Where Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. One of the gods of Canaan, and just so you guys know, uh, Israel was God's instrument to judge the people living in the promised land because of stuff like this. And God waited a long time until their sin finally had reached the heavens, and then Israel became his tool to carry out judgments of those people groups Something you need to know when God says wipe them out, that's what he's doing. He's saying, I've had enough of what they're doing, burning their children alive as an appeasement to some false god called Molech. And why did they do it? They did it for fertility blessings. The, the cultic peoples of those lands said, if you offer your firstborn to this god, he'll give you crops, he'll give you wealth, he'll give you blessings. There is nothing new under the sun. It's inconvenient sometimes when a child is born, especially out of, or a child is conceived, especially out of wedlock. And most abortions, never mind what you hear in the culture, are convenience decisions. They have very little to do, in many cases, with a true crisis. And while it is a crisis for that individual, it doesn't mean that we do something dumb to compound the issue. Everybody with me? Israel was told, I don't want you to imitate the detestable practices of those people. Deuteronomy 18, when you go in the land, don't be converted to their ways. Please hear what I'm about to say. The power of our culture is the same as the Canaanite people's. Israel might have thought, turn back to Psalm 139, oh, we're going to that land. We're not going to do what they do. We, we know God's ways. We've got God's Torah. We won't buy into that. And then they got into the land. And you know what they did? Even kings of Israel did the same thing that those people did, including Ahaz, causing his children to pass through the fire. And he was a king of Judah. We, we underestimate the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil to sway us with emotion and the constant beating of the worldview. I didn't even mention the university system, which is a whole other discussion. Now, David is celebrating, though, and he says, 14 of Psalm 139, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. You know, my soul resonates with truth. I heard somebody recently say when they came to Jesus Christ out of a rebellious lifestyle, 
They said their soul, when truth hit their soul, it was like clear to them. They didn't even need detailed arguments. They're like, yep, that's wrong, that's right. Yep, that's wrong, that's right. It's like the, the word of God just became that lamp to their feet and that light to their path. David says, my frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. The ancients used to kind of have images that children were born in the depths of the earth or molded there because the womb is a kind of a hidden place to the sight of people. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb, Ecclesiastes 11.5, of the pregnant woman. So you don't know the activity of God who makes all things. It's kind of a hidden mystery, but now the ultrasound machine has revealed it. God forming and majestically making. Your eyes, 16, saw my unformed substance. Uh, most agree the early stages of the embryo or the, the fetus or the preborn here, but very early. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And in your book, they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them before. Any of the days written for my life came to pass. God knew every one of them, and they were ordained for me in his book. Amen? God knows how long you're going to live. He knows when you're going to die. He knows everything in between. You don't have to be afraid. He's ordained your life in his book. And he's written, if you're a Christian, your name in his book of life. Not death, a book of life. He's the God, not of the dead, but of the living. Praise God. You know everything about me. Before you formed me in the womb, you knew me. Jeremiah 1.5. My times, Psalm 31.15, are in his hand. How precious are your thoughts to me, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count the number of times that God thinks about me, verse 18, with all this detail from, you know, really even before I was formed in the womb, his thoughts towards me, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with him and he is still with me. You know, sometimes we think, does God hear me when I pray? Does God care about me? Does God think about me? Maybe I'm the exception to the rule. You're not. God's thoughts toward you. Imagine, for those of you who have been to Israel, just imagine the sand near, near the, around the Sea of Galilee. Imagine the sand around the Sea of Salt in the south. Now, take that out towards all the beaches in the world. God's thoughts toward you, he outnumbers the sand of the seashore. You think God doesn't care about you? David says, oh Lord, this knowledge is very deep. Your works, oh the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor? Romans eleven thirty three and 34. Now we're winding down, but I want you to see that there's a tough little section in here about David's response to the wicked. And in light of his connection to God and seeing the world through God's eyes, he says, Oh, 19, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, God, depart from me, therefore men of bloodshed. We can't help but think of the issue of abortion here. 
For they speak against thee wickedly. Thine enemies take thy name in vain. We know that happens, I don't even know how many times a day. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you and hate them with the utmost hatred? They, be, they have become my enemies. Now, this is tough. And Jesus said we're supposed to love our enemies. And I think David's closing prayer will balance this by David saying, if I've got any hurtful way in me, if I'm wrong about any of this, correct me, O Lord. But I will tell you this. We just studied Malachi, and Malachi says that the, soul, that the, the enemies of God will be dust under the soles of our feet one day when he raptures and resurrects the church and begins to rule and reign. Those who fight God, persecute the church, destroy the unborn, uh, mock God, uh, martyr his people, they will be dealt with one day. You know how to avoid that? Repent. Amen? Anyone who's opposing God, like Saul of Tarsus, confronted by the light of the truth, repent and be saved. There's vicious attacks against God and his people that happen every day. I don't think I need to tell you. I think David has that attitude, kind of saying, Lord, I'm against whatever you're against. Break my heart as we sing for what breaks yours. Help me to love what you love and hate what you hate. But we know God loves the world. We know he loves people. And I think that's why David says this. And this is the takeaway. This is the response. Would you see it? For your own heart this morning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me or test me and know my anxious thoughts. I want to stop here by telling you that David prayed exactly what he had said in verse 1. You've searched me, you know me. And he invites more of it. He says, then keep on searching me, God, and know my heart. Keep on trying me and know areas of my anxiety, areas that are not submitted to your lordship, areas of fear. Areas where I would say I'm not anxious for nothing. I'm anxious for a lot of things. Areas where I haven't fully submitted to your lordship or I have my doubts or whatever. Lord, know that. Search me out. Let your searchlight come into my life. Because I know you know all of my anxieties. I know you know my fears. Let your light come into them. See, 24, if there be any hurtful, harmful way in me. Now, David did talk about God's enemies, but now he, he comes back to himself in light of God's attributes and his power and his closeness and his guiding our lives. And he says, now, Lord, let your searchlight try me, test me, search me. If there's anything in me that's injurious, anything that's offensive to you, this is the New Living Translation. It says, point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. You know, one of the most important things in our culture is not to offend anybody. Now, we don't hesitate to offend God, and Christians seem to be fair game most of the time. But people think that the gravest sin of our culture is to offend somebody, and somebody's offended when you don't agree with them. Amen? I mean, watch out. Buckle your seatbelt when you take an alternate view. And say, I don't believe that. And I don't believe that that's right. <gasps> How dare you? Oftentimes, when the truth is screaming out, like we've studied in the last couple of weeks, 
It's as plain as the nose on our face. The truth, rational thought, no duh, is crying out. (laughs) And yet people say, how dare you? Because objective truth, are you guys ready? Objective truth corresponds to reality. What an incredible statement. Please remember it. Objective truth corresponds to reality. Subjective truth is, it doesn't matter how it looks. It's how I feel. This is where we are as a culture. And we've got to see through it. Amen. (laughs) It's about where I'm at right now, too. (laughs) Lord, show me anything in my life that would offend you. If you allow the fear of God to stamp out all your other fears, if your first concern is, I don't want to offend my maker, because I'm not standing before my friends on judgment day. I'm not standing before my parents on judgment day. I'm not standing before pro athletes on judgment day. I'm not standing before presidents on judgment day. I'm not standing before city councils or Actors or actresses on Judgment Day. I'm standing before Jesus Christ on Judgment Day. And my goal has become not to offend him. Amen? And I know how many times I have. And I know how good he is despite that. The everlasting way, we can't help but think of the gospel. Would you bow your heart, Father? Thank you that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one is coming to the Father except through me. We know heaven is your Father's house. But to take the positive, everyone who trusts in Christ as the way is coming into the house, is forgiven of every sin we've ever committed. They are nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything we've thought thought about saying, done in our heart, our outward actions, all of it naked and open before you, a thought before we think it, a word before we speak it, the motive of my heart, the secret sins of my heart, all before you, Lord. Not just things that I've done in terms of my body or words that have come out of my mouth. That would be bad enough in terms of my sin, but all the hidden things, all the things behind closed doors, all the things when no one's watching or looking, exposed, naked and open before the one to whom I must give an account. And yet, that one became the way for me to be right with you. That one, Jesus, took my punishment at the cross. If you, Lord, kept a record of my sin, I could never stand. I would deserve to be thrown into the hottest place of judgment. But you, Lord, you're not like that. You're good. You love. And many in this room, if not most, have already had a moment where you you chased them down. You sought the lost. You saved them. They're born again. Some have been running, but they, they heard today, where could I run? 
Why would I want to run? And Lord, there are some who don't know you yet. And some of these words have been really hard. But you're good and you love them. And truth exposes us. Our sin gets exposed so that we might be healed. This issue of abortion, it hurts our hearts, Lord. And it it can bring up old wounds that have been laid at the foot of the cross, but yet they're still there. But thank you that there's hope beyond the grave. Thank you that you're such a God of grace, despite what we've done. Would you keep your head and heart bowed if you've not met this great Savior who formed you in your mama's womb, who loved you so much that he came on a rescue mission. He is literally a prayer away. He calls upon you to repent and receive him as your Lord and Savior. Cry out to him. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. Thank you for dying on that terrible cross for me paying my debt in full. Thank you for your resurrection, guaranteeing us life beyond the grave. I trust you. Father, forgive our nation. We've sinned against you, Lord, and for us to expect that we're going to have some sort of comeback without repenting is, I think, a fool's errand. But when your people repent, when a nation repents, Grace and mercy flow. New beginnings. Times of flourishing happen. Our nation needs to repent. From government houses to pulpits to living rooms, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. We want this to be behind us. All of the the sins that we know are clear as day. Forgive us. Let's start with your church. We need revival in our land, Father. We've been praying for revival. It's got to start with your people. So revive us, O Lord, according to your awesome grace. Pray all of this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord and King.